0: read your Bible. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19 this morning. 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to mix it up on you a little bit. And I want to, I want to bring the word first uh, for a couple of reasons. Sometimes we do this uh, because I feel like may uh, inform our worship. I hope that always when you look into God's word that your worship gets informed. But this morning I wanted to, uh, I wanted to give the opportunity, the immediate opportunity for God's word to inform your worship today in the the songs that we're going to sing after after we're going to work. So grab your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you there's someone in the seat that's in front of you, Uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, you can keep one of those. That's our gift to you, okay? Uh, Well, Merry Christmas. I do count this as the uh, Christmas Sunday. Uh, It just seems to me that it is being the nearest Sunday to Christmas Christmas Sunday. So last week, we finished up our second priority of our church. Uh, our focus and our relationship on the body of Christ. We'll be moving into our third priority after the New Year. Next week, you'll want to come back because Elder Bradley King our Elder chairman, will bring the word for you next week. And if you want <coughs> to preach, uh, you'll want to be here. But after that, we'll, we'll get back into our study on our church's purpose, uh, following the Lord, feeding sheep, and freeing the world. Our relationship to God, our relationship to each other, which we just wrapped up, and we'll go into our relationship to Work. This week is your token Christmas message, and I'm not usually big on holiday type messages, but in some sense, today's message will also be a transition into our next part of our purpose series. Well, let me let me tell you a Christmas story based on 1 in First Kings chapter 19. In First Kings chapter 11, you get Solomon, who was, uh, in our recollection, the richest man who had ever lived. The wisest man to have ever lived. He was, in many ways, uh, a righteous man. He wrote uh, many things that are included in our in our scripture, Psalm Solomon, the Deuterocanonicals, and Psalms, Proverbs, not Psalms, Proverbs. Excuse me. Uh, a huge contributor to our Word, but he had he had some issues, just as we all do. Uh, he had some issues, and thanks be to God that he did not. Uh, Excludes Solomon's issues from the Word. In 1 Kings chapter 11, it tells us that Solomon, well, he got, in some ways, (coughs) he ruined things. It says that Solomon began to follow after other gods. Based on the relationships that he had built with women of other countries, you know Solomon, because Solomon not only had a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge and a lot of money, but he had a lot of women. And that was, in some sense, his downfall, as it is many men. Chapter 11 says that he not only embraced these women, he embraced their philosophies. He embraced their religion. He embraced their pagan religion. And that turned his heart, Scripture says, away from God, to where his heart was not completely Yahweh's. God, disappointed, brings judgment to the line of Solomon. He's gracious and it says in chapter 11 that he will not, or chapter 12, that he will not bring the judgment down in the times of Solomon in his lifetime, but that his sons would now see this judgment. Based on David's faithfulness, Solomon's father, God would withhold this judgment and the kingdom would remain intact under Solomon. But after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel would be split and we get what's called the divided kingdom. Now we have one Part of the kingdom, the northern half of the kingdom, and then we have the southern half of the kingdom. And so, from that point on, the nation of Israel was split in two. People took sides, and there were differences. And sometimes the north was faithful, and sometimes the south was faithful, and very often neither were faithful. And we get this line of kings who would either occupy the throne in the north or occupy the throne in the south. And it would say after. These kings' lives—that they were faithful to God or they weren't faithful to God—you get phrases like this. At the end of his life, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That was the—that was the retrospective of some of the king's life. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Or you saw some kings—they were more wicked even than all the kings before them. I was would you like that to be your your epitaph, the summary of your life? And that went on and on. In the time of Solomon, the split of the the kingdom, we get king after king who who did evil in the sight of the Lord, who was even more wicked than the guy before them. And what we get in Israel, in the north and the south, is just this mounting wickedness. Elijah steps on the scene in the midst of this mounting wickedness. He comes on the scene under a king named Ahab. And Ahab, like Solomon, He he married someone that he should have not married. He married a lady that you may know, and it was Jezebel. And Jezebel brought with her all her religion. And in fact, she began to, in a sense, rule the kingdom as a queen, usurping his kingship. And in a lot of the accounts, you see Ahab defaulting or deferring to Jezebel's rule. In his love for her, he embraced her religion, her philosophies, and he ended up turning the kingdom and the keys to the kingdom, as it were, to open to this pagan <coughs> religious moment. Elijah, the prophet sent by God, he steps on the scene in the midst of this mountain wickedness. It's said of Ahab in the time of Elijah that he was more wicked than any that were before him, That God was more disgusted with him than any king before him. He had done more to aggravate or anger his God than any of the previous kings. And they had done some crazy stuff. And so it's sort of coming to, to a pinnacle here with Ahab. And God sends Elijah, the prophet. He's the mouthpiece of God. He's going, to, he's going to issue some instructions and he's going to bring judgment in a sense. We find that when Elijah comes, he comes to Ahab, and he announces to Ahab that, that God has said there will now be a drought in the land. What a drought meant for that nation, for that people, is that God was removing his hand of protection and provision. You see, it wasn't just that they were go hungry, it wasn't just that their crops would be low; it wasn't just that they would struggle there, but it was a picture of God removing his blessing. God was cutting them off in judgment of his provision. And so Elijah comes to Ahab and to Jezebel and he announces that because of the mounting wickedness there will be judgment on the land. Now they don't like this. And so you find that Elijah is told by God run and hide because your life is now in danger. And so we find for three years Elijah is on the land. He's on the run. He's hiding from Ahab and Ahab and Jezebel have got their people out searching. Jezebel kills all the other prophets in the land. The prophets of Yahweh, And in a sense, uh, uh, Elijah is the, is the lone prophet led. The story goes that God comes to Elijah after he lives and he says, Okay, now go back to Ahab. and Here's what you need to tell him. The drought will be over. Okay? So he comes back and uh, he finds Ahab and he meets with Ahab. And Ahab, uh, as you to expect, he blames it all on Elijah. He says, If you have brought this upon our people... Because of your edict, because of your judgment that you brought upon us. And Elijah said, what does mean? it wasn't me, but he's based on what you've done. And Elijah says, here's what we'll do. Call all the people together. Call all the nation together. So they have to Call all the people together. And he says, what we're going to do is we're going to find out who's God is here. He says to the nation, make a choice. It's a beautiful statement. He says, make a choice. Is God God? Then follow him. Is Baal God? Then follow him. Let's just see and all the people look around and the passage says that that's a good idea. And so you remember the story, you've probably heard it preached many times. Elijah says, go and get an ox, chop him up, cut him up, build an altar, a sacrificial altar of wood, don't put any fire under it, however, and put your offering up there. And you go first and you call on Baal, you cry out to your God, and you ask him to send fire down and consume the offering that you are offering to him. if he does it, then he's God and we'll follow him. You remember the story? It's one of the most comical Old Testament stories I there. You get the prophets of Baal. And I think there are 400 and something prophets of Baal and you got just Elijah here standing there watching him. And all the nations watching. They have to watch. And all day, starting in the morning, it says it goes till about noon. They're calling on their God. They're dancing around the altar. Uh, they're doing whatever they can do. It says that they begin to cut themselves and they begin to bleed out themselves as a part of their commitment to Baal. They're doing everything they can. It is a comical passage to read. You see these would-be prophets of a would-be God dancing around this altar all day long. And their God is not answering. Elijah even in fact comes to him and says, Listen, hey, uh, maybe you need to be a little louder. Maybe your God is busy doing something else. In fact, he might even be asleep. (laughs) So maybe you need to just cry out a little louder. So they do. It says that they listen to Elijah. Right? And they got even louder. Eventually, nothing happened. It came to the point where the passage says that, that all the people who were paying attention in the beginning, finally, they just went on about their business. And, and it says, when no one else was even giving any attention to what was going on around the altar of Baal, Elijah steps up and says, Okay, it's my Put an ox on the altar of God, put no fire under. In fact, instead of fire, let's add a bunch of water. It's an interesting, interesting picture because we're in a time of drought and water was precious. And so it's sort, of, it's sort of weird that he would say, grab any of the water that you got and pour it on my sacrifice. It's kind of hard to light a wet sacrifice. right? But he says, pour it on. Uh, no, that's not enough. Do it a second time. Oh, no, that's not enough. Do it a third time. And that's not really enough. He said, go ahead and dig a trench around it. And all that water that's pouring, it'll just stay there so that it can be this pool of water that my sacrifice is in. And then it says he cries out to the one true God. And God sends fire down. There is nothing there. God sends fire down. It consumes the whole offering, The whole altar. It licks up all the water and all the dust and all the ashes and everything that's gone. Amazing. Right? Amazing. And you get this whole group of people who repent at that point. Elijah, in, a, in an act that I think is one of the most gracious acts in the world, that says to Ahab, the supposed king of Israel, he says, listen, uh, we're going to go ahead and kill off all the false prophets. You've got to quit house. He lets Ahab live, however. Even though Ahab had led them into this wickedness, he lets Ahab live and kill all the prophets of Abraham. And he says to Ahab, he, says, he said, Listen, uh, let me just give you, let me just give you a little bit of information. I know there's going to drought, but it's going to rain, and it's going to rain hard. So before it before it rains really hard, we can't get up to it says, we need to go up on this mountain, we need to go going to eat basically. Before it starts to rain, we can't get to where you need to go ahead and eat. And then this is Elijah goes up on the mountain and he Crouches down and he puts his face between his, between his knees and he cries out to God for rain. And he says to his servant, Go look over the other towards the other side of the mountain, towards the sea, and, I, and tell me, do you see a rain cloud coming? And Elijah is praying his heart out for this rain cloud, and the comes back and says, I see a I see cloud that's about the size of like a man's hand. But before long, it becomes this, this all out storm, and Elijah says, Now go to Ahab and tell him, he better, get, he better get back to his, his home. He better go back to Jezreel before his chariots will get stuck. It's going to rain so hard, he's not going to be able to get home. And another act of grace, he says, tell Ahab it's time to go before the rain comes. He can get home there. So Ahab does. He, he goes home. And then it's interesting, the end, of the, the end of the passage says that the Spirit of the Lord was with Elijah and he girded up his loins and he outran the chariots of Ahab. Now, the, the, a chariot is always fast, but the king's chariot is always the fastest, right? But the Spirit came on Elijah, and it, and it caused him to outrun Ahab back to Jezebel. right? It says that he girded up his loins. Somebody of the I mentioned girding up his loins. I feel like it's due an explanation. Right? Uh, they, they wore these kind of band dresses, right? They had a belt around, right? And when you have a man dress on, it's kind of hard to run. Okay? And by the way, it was 16 miles back to where they were going, maybe 17 miles. It's a long way. Uh, you better. And I don't know how old Elijah was. I, I need to do some research on there about how old he was at this point, because I, I, I'm guessing he was older than I am, and I'm not making 17 miles. No wonder the Spirit of the Lord had to come upon him. When he girded up his voice, what that means is he would reach down and he would grab the back of his man dress, okay? the backhand, he would pull it up and gird up his loins, and so now he has shorts on and he would tuck it into his belt. And now he's got, he got some running gear on. right? And so he runs all the way back and it says that he beats the chariots of Ahab back to Jezreel. I, I wonder why Elijah was so excited. My guess is that Elijah expected Ahab to repent, kick Jezebel out of the feet, get rid of all the false gods, and that the kingdom would be would be back in line where it needed to be. The first Kings 19 says that, that didn't happen. It says that when he got back, Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and that all the prophets <coughs> of Baal had been slaughtered. he would have told And it says that Jezebel's response was, that I will have Elijah's life in return to the prophets of Baal. what should they have instead? Jezebel, it's time for you and your false gods to know. Because there is only one true God. I've seen Him in my own eyes. Work. Take the sacrifice that was offered to Him. I watched the prophets of Baal bounce around like idiots for hours on end and nothing ever happened. It's time for you to do it. And all, all your false promises of promises you did it. For some reason, when he's making us a good night it's helpful as well, everything that Elijah did, she did not night. All her prophets have been together. And so now she puts, well, she puts it down now on Elijah's life. The next verse is kind of odd because it says Elijah was afraid for his life. There's a whole lot of, whole lot of principles to learn from in this story. And, uh, I'm going to try my best not to get bogged down in any of them so that we can get to our family point born the Rest assured, we're going to come back to the story as we continue into our the next part of our series. We're going to draw some principles from this story of Elijah for our purpose of evangelism. But Elijah, it says, was scared for his life. It's a little odd to me because he had just done such a miraculous thing. God had used him in such a danger way. But now when his life is in danger, he says, oh, So he runs again. Not out of joy this time, but out of fear. And it says he runs and runs and uh, he eventually eventually wears out. That's what I want to pick up. Because as he as he wears down, it says that the angel of the Lord visits him. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, many believe, is an Old Testament appearance or a pre incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. There are several times when it seems that there is an angel called the angel of the Lord, not just a angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord that visits people. And on this occasion, the angel of the Lord visits Elijah, he feeds Elijah, he helps Elijah to rest, and he says... You're going to need this sustenance to move on. And so then Elijah gets up, and he goes 40 more days' journey, 40 nights, until he gets to Mount Sinai, What the passage says, Mount Ford. This is the same place where Moses got the law of God. It was the mountain of God's covenant. It was the mountain of the law. That was the symbolism of Sinai. It's where God dwells, and it's where he gives the law, and it's where justice is of God. So you can see why Elijah might be going to Mount Horeb. I might be going to Mount Sinai. Now we're going to pick that in verse nine. Then he came there to a cave and lodged. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to Elijah, "What are you doing here? What are you doing here?" Verse ten. Elijah said, "I have been very zealous for the Lord." The God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life, to take it away. So God said, go forth and stand on a mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord is passing by. And a great and strong wind was Rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of the gentle blowing, soft whisper some translations say, a still small voice. Thirteen. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, that's his cloak, and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, now a voice came to him and said, "Elijah, what are you doing here?" Elijah. It's a good question, isn't it? Why do you think Elijah was there? What did he want? What could Elijah want from God in a time when his life? Being sorry. Passage Jesus. 14 repeats. First, Friday, of God. And again, very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, and the sons of Israel have forsaken the covenant as if God had been the first time. Torn down the altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek my life <coughs> to take it away. What did Elijah have? What he doing? What was he doing? On the mountain of the covenant of God. What is He doing on the mountain of the law? He wants justice. He wants judgment. God, look at what they're doing. I'm the only one that is going for you. Look at where your people have gone. Look at what they've done with the altars. God. Look at the altars that they've raised up in the, in the place. Elijah wants justice, vengeance, punishment. He wants God to sell. Right. Yeah, And that's not a mob request, is it? Time to time do we all, we all feel that way, as we've been going for God. This is a Great sermon, this sermon isn't, but there is a sermon here for all the church planners and other You feel like you're, you're going hard and going hard, but fewer followers, fewer communities. Hmm. But for you who are doing the work of evangelism, and you're being and and faithful to your witness, you're being faithful to your testimony, you're sharing the good news, and there seems to be a very little return. Very little return. Spurgeon preached this message to that man. He said to the, to the one who's in the congregation today, to the would-be minister who's here and burned out, because in the back roads and the back alleys that you do your ministry, you're sending no fruit. He said, I say to you, go back. Go back and do the work that God has called you to do. The fruit that you do not see is not the thing that it is actually. It may be fruit that you will only see in heaven. That's how Spurgeon a lot of blessings yeah. Elijah wanted judgment. Elijah wanted everything that was wrong to be made right. By the way, does God ask questions that he doesn't already know the answer to? <laughs> no. Did God know what Elijah was doing there? God knew. He knew why he was on Mount Sinai. He knew what Elijah's heart was. Elijah didn't have to tell him twice that he was seemingly the only faithful one of right? life and all the other prophets have been struggling. He didn't have to tell God that he was on the run with his wife. In fact, God already answered this question Why are you here, Allah? Justice. Judge wickedness. Bless the righteous. Let the hammer of your vengeance come down where it needs to come down. Did God already know that's right? I think he did. Good work. Look back at what he said. Before he asked Elijah the second time, I think he thought Elijah might have gotten the picture in how God approached the situation. He goes and he's there. God asks him why he's on the mountain. And he tells him it's a flight. He tells him what the nation has been up to. And God says, okay, you stand, you stand here in this cave, and I'm going to, I'm going to come, you're going to pass by. And in this whole, this whole picture here of God's arrival, God, I think, teaches Elijah what he wants him to know, and Elijah misses him. Did you get it? What does Elijah want? He wants to win He wants the earth to quake. He wants God's fire and judgment to come down and destroy everything that needs to destroy and send everything right What does God's arrival teach about you? God's arrival, he says, is not in the wind. There is a great wind. The passage, according to this, says God's not in the wind. And then there came. Quaking of the earth, but God was not in the quaking of the earth. And then there came this great fire. I do like to see that. I wonder what it was. Just this fire flew through the air. It was lightning out. I don't know what it was. It was just, just this burst of flame. But it says that, that God was not in the fire. Now, those, it seems to me, are the things that Elijah is looking for God to come to be. All right. Justice, vengeance, wipe it all out, make it all right. The passage just says, it's not, it's not there. God is not. He's not there. But then at the end of that, it says there's just this, and it's a hard word to translate in the Hebrew, it just says there's this eerie silence that catches Elijah's attention. And at that eerie silence, that calm that came after the storm came in, Elijah goes out and he covers his face because he he instinctively knows that God is there. That's where God is, and he comes out meek with his face covered. And now verse, and that's what's the point? Why are you here? And Elijah, like many of us, I think God has just given us like a miraculous, beautiful picture that He just spilled it out in the sky for us. Well, no, he just repeats his same deal. Uh, I'm going to put it online, kill all the other prophets, and God's going to give me a peace pack. So God isn't yet in the wind, or the earthquake, or the fire that will one day consume the current heavens and earth. Mm. Daniel and Revelation say that it will come. The creation itself will consume itself at the very word of God. It will, it will, in the wind and earthquaking and fire, it will destroy itself, and God will create a new heavens and a new earth. Elijah wanted that. He wanted that finality. One commentator says he was he was tired of the church militant and longed for the church triumphant. He wanted to move out of that. That, that time in his life where he's just hitting his head on the wall. And there's very little repentance. And now they're even after his life. He gets to the point and says, God, just take me home. Declare justice. Make it all right. And God says, you stand there and watch. He's not in the things that the thought he would be. And the silence, the still whisper comes. Elijah instinctively knows and goes out and there is God in his. For now, God's mind wind and the earthquake or the fire. God is in the silent, gentle dispersion. Uh, I wonder, is this old testament story sound humanity? Where else do you see God's children rejecting him? They're cut off from his hand and blessing. They're told to look for the prophet when he arrives and shows himself. He repented. His life is sought out. His followers are frustrated because the prophet isn't bringing vengeance. But he's being rejected. They're frustrated. And just when they thought that everything would be, would be made right, and that the hammer of God's justice would fall, God says, God me." No no wind yet. No earthquake yet. No fire yet. Let me let me whisper once more. <laughs> let me whisper once more. To the wind, the earth and the fire. God the man Instead it comes in a way, that seems oddly weak and mild. Not by might, not by power. He comes like that. The whole general discipline of God. Mm -hmm. something that may seem odd to you but it is in fact in line with God's very character <coughs> Meditations I believe Jeremiah both talk about the justice of God being strange it's odd to his loving character it's part of his nature be he will play justice but it is odd to his, his nature of his life. if God will come down and bring a hammer all of these rejecting wicked airing children, that should be our. The fire, the rain, the wind, the storm, the devastation of all creation, the wiping it all away, that's an odd thing God. The mm-hmm. call of God is to come end this discipline, the gentleness, and silence. And give one more call to the evil. Will God judge? He will. Look at 1 Kings 19 to verse 15. This is God's response to Elijah's second flag for justice. The Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael, King over Aran. Go back, Elijah, get back to work. Keep doing what you were called to do. Sixteen. Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholo, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Seventeen. It shall come about: the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put him to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elijah shall put to death. Will justice come? Will vengeance come? Will God uphold righteousness? He will, but not yet. You get back to work. I'll do all these things in my time. But check this out. Look at the next verse. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel. There is yet a remnant there that is not responded to my whisper of grace. There is yet a remnant out there that has not responded to my call of mercy. And I'm going to extend the time before my judgment falls, so that those who are called according to my name can come. I'm still doing some stuff, Elijah, that you don't understand. I'm not in the fire, yet. I'm not in the wind. I'm not in the storm. I'm not in the earthquake yet. I will be one day. But for right now, I'm in the still whispering. And that just seems odd to Elijah. It seems odd to us. It seemed odd to who? Everyone who's waiting on the Messiah, Everyone who's waiting on Jesus to come and correct everything and free the Jews and make everything right and be not only the spiritual leader but primarily be this militant leader to be the king of kings and the lord of lords this ruling authority that set everything right on earth. And he shows up like this. In in an animal's trough, Not what they had hoped for. Not the way they had hoped for it. Cooing as a as an innocent, meek, mild child. That, that's what God is doing. Christmas, the birth of Jesus, it is God's whisper to humanity once more, His patience and mercy being extended once more. It is a reminder to us, That before the wind, before the earthquakes, before judgment falls down, there is yet time. God is still waiting on those He is waiting on. I preached a sermon a few weeks back for my uncle. He was in a car wreck. He was two-blown by a drunk driver. Uh, He ran a red light getting right at his door. He was in the hospital for seven weeks and he passed away from his injuries. Preached his funeral. And uh, I I assumed, as the token preacher in the family, and uh, probably rightly so, that the family would be looking to me for some sort of word from God on how this this type of evil thing could happen. And I preached one of my uh, favorite passages with that in mind preached uh, 2 Peter 3, 9. Mm. I think it's one of the uh, key passages in all the New Testament that understanding what God is up to. It right. may be the most important passage that I know in the New Testament. When it comes to the big question that Elijah had, what is God doing? Where are you, God? What's going on? This is what the people are doing? This is what I'm trying to do? Let's just end this thing already. And Peter sensed the same things and he, and he, and he said in 2 Peter 3, nine to the church there, he said, listen, there are going to be those as this thing stretches on who say, you know what? Your God's not going to show up again and judge the world. he's not going to come back. Because he had promised he would be back and he would set all things right. But as day went after and week went and month went and years would go by, Peter said, he said, listen, don't grow weary. And don't, don't fall prey to those who will preach against you and say that God is not going to show up. 2 Peter 3:9 says that God is not slow about his promises. In context, his promise to judge the world. He's not slow about his promises, He's some kind of slowness, or some passages say, sometimes some translations say, slack. In fact, here's what he's doing: it says, but he is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all have come to repentance. What's the heart of God? and say, I'm, I'm going to hold back, back, back to earth from waking for a little bit longer. I know you want me to set everything right. I'm not slow about what I've said I'm going to do. But you've got to understand I'm being patient because some of you need to repent lest you die with your sin. And there'll be no hope for you. In the meantime, we like Elijah, we get to endure what the world throws at us. And we get to all the children. Because God is doing something that we may have to on it. Saw a sign on and was Thanksgiving as we went my in-laws. it caught my attention there on the highway. I've never seen a sign like this. And there's a whole lot of those God, you know, black and black God signs out there, and there's more and more religious type signs out there. Uh, but this one caught my eye because it it was I don't remember the exact wording, but it was it was a sign calling for the immediate return of Jesus Christ to physical earth to, to set all things right. And as I read that, I thought, like, wow, that's bold. I mean, there's like a group of people who went in and paid for this billboard, big money, like 10 grand a month or something, probably more on the this. And, and they said, We're calling for God to come back right now. And we agree together, Come, Lord, now. And my spirit said, Ah, that's awesome. Come, Lord. Come, Lord, soon. Oh, yes. My flesh and my humanity said, "Oh, but becomes everything. Okay. It becomes its, it's own. Oh, there is no more chance. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether day, whether they did it on their own or Now we're being blinded by, by in the time of mercy, in the time of grace that God has extended and extended and extended to the point of some of our frustration, to the point of Elijah's frustration, that time will be over. And all will be called to an end. Uh, remember when God flooded the earth and the leads creation to, the earth, to wipe out? Every, every individual man on the earth. Remember, he used the guy as a, uh, as a warning to the whole world. Well, he used Noah, and uh, Noah built this ark. You've seen that in all my history. And uh, he, he built this ark, and I thought he was crazy. He was the get one in the world. He was just, you know, so the purpose of maintaining the community. So the whole thing about falling was an odd strange thing that happened, uh, which is interesting in so, itself. But there was more of a warning than just Noah building this great big rock which people didn't know. There was another warning before, and there was was a whisper before in Noah's Noah's great grandfather, uh, not his great grandfather, just his grandfather. Noah's grandfather, his name literally meant um, judgment is coming, or when he dies, judgment comes. So the guy's name, okay, in Hebrew, often your name like you said something. And so you walk around and you say your name is like Sunday saying, it saying. It's a declaration. And this guy walked around and says, hey, I'm I'm judging his okay? coming. on, heaven, right? But the point of the, the picture of this guy and his name itself was that when this guy dies, turns out. When this guy dies, the world will be flooded. Noah, the flood, his grandfather, when his grandfather passes, he comes. And so this guy here, he's kind of like that whisper of God. He's this, he's this gracious, warrior of God. He didn't only really give Noah, he gave, he gave his grandfather. Anybody know his grandfather's name? Can you hear question? What do you know Methuselah? Most of us only know him because he's the oldest guy here ever did, right? So I've had an only one of For 969 years, what's your son? Did Methuselah live to be 969 longer than anybody else that ever lived, ever will live, because he was you know, pretty fit? And he had a low carb diet, because he jogged often? I guess you not. Know. Methuselah was the oldest guy to ever live on earth because God was being gracious right. and saying to humanity, when he finally judgment. That's good. Will judgment come? Absolutely. But the heart of God is, I'm going to stretch it as long as I can. 969, the heart of God is, is right now, whispering, we all The time for the fire is not there. Let me show you one more passage on the close. Hebrews, flip over here, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is a New Testament picture of the same mountain. This mountain is also known in the Old Testament because it's where Moses, as I told you, he got the law of God. He got the law of God. Only Moses could go up on the mountain. There was a lot of smoke. There was a lot of wind. There was a lot of fire. There was a lot of stuff that Elijah ran into on the mountain. There was all that stuff. And it says that the uh, that the nation of Israel, they looked at Moses and said, man, you're crazy because we're going up there. Uh, we can't go up to that God. In fact, what we need is we need one guy who will go up. We need a mediator." We need we need to send Moses. Yes, that's a good idea. Let's send Moses up. We'll all just wait down here. And in fact, God made made it clear that if they even come near them, if they touch them, stay far back. Don't come near. Okay. And He gave all the clouds and all the wind and all the rain, and all the storm. And It was frightening. It says that they were scared. It says even Moses feared for his life. So they knew instinctively: stay back from that thing. They knew instinctively. We've got to send a mediator. We've got to send somebody up that mountain who can make peace between us and the God who is on top of it. And they stayed off that mountain. Look what Hebrews 12 says about this mountain. And our relationship to it. And about the mediator that went out and made peace for us. The prophet that the Gospel of John says would be like Moses and would come again. The book says... We'll start in 18. For you have not come to a mountain which when you touch into a blazing fire into darkness and gloom and a whirlwind into the blast of a trumpet to the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them. That's a picture of the nation of Israel. And the author of Hebrews is saying that's not the mountain we face anymore. Okay? So you don't have to feel like Israel felt. Keep going. Verse 20. For they cannot bear the command even, and this is a quote, from Exodus 19. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. That was, that was the easy thing I forgot. 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trouble. But you have come to Mount Zion. That's not a physical mountain. That is a spiritual heavenly mountain. That's a, that's a picture of the mountain that we now reside on with God. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God himself, the judge of all, yes, and to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect, and to Jesus, who is what? The mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. Now look at this last verse. Because you have seen so it before. Some of y'all recognize it from Hebrews. Which you'll recognize it in the next psalm that will read. Which speaks a better word than the blood of Do You know that psalm? You know the blood? It speaks a better word than the same. That phrase, the blood of Christ, that mediator who went up on the mountain and made these for us, that we can now go, so there's not just this big storm in our way. We do not have to just stand back, but we get to go. Hebrews says that now on this mountain, because his blood has been sprinkled <coughs> of on the mercy seat of the Holy Holies, there covenant, we now have this blood that speaks a better word, and then it says something, ah, oh, a better word than that of the blood of Abram. That is a that is a reference to Genesis 410. i you look that right up later. In Genesis 4.10, we get the story of Cain and Abel coming to a head. You remember Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel, two brothers, right? Way back in the early days. Okay? You've seen your work. You know how this works too. Uh, Cain and Abel, they they bring their sacrifices to God. Cain brings the sacrifice of his hands. He, he plants stuff and he grows stuff and he works on it and he brings that to God. And God says, that's not acceptable. You worked that out and you did that with your own hands and, and you grew that. That's not acceptable. Abel, however, his brother, who's righteous, he gives, he gives God from the beasts that he has. He's sacrificing God. He says, God, this is what you gave me. I didn't do anything. I'm just giving it back to you. And that's acceptable to God. Cain doesn't like it. Cain ends up killing his brother, right, out of jealousy. They're gone. Cain comes back, and God says, listen, hey, uh, where's Abel? And remember what Cain does? He says, I, I don't know. I haven't seen him, which is a lot, Right? And then God calls him on. Remember what God says, Genesis 14, He says, What have you done, King? The blood of your brother Abel cries out from the ground. Mm-hmm. That, that thats When you're murdered, as Abel was back, and your blood is down in the ground, it's been spilled in the ground. And God says that now your blood cries out from the ground to him, what does that mean? It's the image that, that Abel was crying out for justice, right. right? Make things right, God. The blood of the, the innocent murdered victim cries out from the ground against his brother and says, "That's not right." And God says, "His blood cries out as if for vengeance, as if for justice to fall." Instead, God is killed punishes him, sends him on his way, and does another, only a work for him. The Hebrew says, here, at the end of our image of the mountain, we have now in Jesus, one who has sprinkled his blood, a blood which, by the way, is a better word than that of the blood of Abel. The picture is, that the blood of Jesus, check this out, the blood of Jesus, cries not out from the cross, or from the ground, beneath the cross, in defeat, out of vengeance, God, come down in justice and wrath. The blood of Jesus in victory cries out. God here is in mercy mm-hmm. to the whole world. We need you, Christmas. Now in those days, Luke to says, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the census be taken of all that we had to earth. This was the first census taken while Quinergius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went out from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judah, to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethany, because he was of the house and the family of David. And he went in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Then she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in an animal's feeding truck, because there was no room for them in the fancy field. In the same region, there were some shepherds, pastors of the staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Do not think they should be? But, but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring to you, not a wind, not a quaking of the earth, not a fire of God's judgment, I bring to you good news, great joy, which will be for all the people, for today, in the sea of the David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you, shepherds and pastors. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger, an odd, completely strange thing. It would be obvious if they ran into this. They were And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And now this what? Peace here on earth. Peace on earth. moment. the angels have gone away from heaven to heaven, the shepherds have been saying let us go straight to that and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us.